Welcome back to Teacher Quit Talk. We have very serious people with important jobs, yeah. so everyone be on your best behavior. Everybody freaking chill. <laughs> we have professionals in the building this time. All right. I'm Frost. I'm Miss Redacted, and we will allow our lovely guest to introduce herself. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Leah Watson. I'm a senior staff attorney in the racial justice program in the ACLU's national office. And my pronouns are she, her. This is so exciting. I'm so happy that you're here. This is a dream come true to have just like an expert in the field of anything. It's usually just us. The field of law. Like for... I have a really false belief that if I took the bar exam today, I'd pass. I really do believe that. I have no evidence to believe that because I've heard it's very hard. So it's very impressive. You went to law school. You're a whole attorney. We've never had an attorney on this podcast. Yeah, I think taking the bar exam off the cuff might be a little difficult. Probably not. I'm going to pass it. Well, when you're studying, they tell you in class, you're not going to be able to pass it until the day you take it. Like even the day before, you might fail it. But that day, you'll be ready. So, you know, that's the cause for ambition. But if you want to try it, I'm in support. I think it should be like the SAT where just anyone can register and just show up, see how you do. To the bar? It is like that in some states. Really? There are some states where you don't have to go to law school. You have to do, I mean, it's not quite like that. You have to do like a trained study, but you can take the exam like Kim Kardashian. Took the words out of my mouth. Isn't it? She's doing like an apprenticeship or something instead. Yeah, there's, but there are a few states where you can do it. And you can basically study and then take the bar and you don't have to go to law school. I mean, it's rare. I have a feeling most people don't do so hot if they don't go to law school. No. It's rough. (laughs) I had a friend who took the LSAT without telling anyone and she scored like out of this world on it. I was like, you were a theater major with me. While you were screwing around doing Shakespeare in the park, she was learning the law of this nation. I know. I am so proud of her. And like any hoozle. So you were a teacher before, yeah? Yes, I taught high school. I taught world history and political science in Atlanta. I did Teach for America. Um, and I taught for two years. It was amazing. Did you go into teaching thinking you wanted to do law or were you in teaching and you were like, let me be a lawyer and fix this. This is a mess. Yeah, I went into teaching when I graduated from college. I went to Vanderbilt. I thought that I wanted to be a reporter, but I wasn't ready to go straight through. So, you know, I saw these flyers with kids. Every kid had their hand up and I'd done so much volunteering working with kids. I was excited about systemic change and closing the achievement gap and all the idealism that comes with freshly leaving college. So I started in TFA. I taught in Atlanta for two years and there were things I really loved about it. I often say it was the best job I've ever had in some respects because it's so rewarding. Like you came in my classroom, you didn't know it. You left here, you knew it, or maybe you know some part of it, but it's like every day you can see an immediate return on your efforts, on your investments. Like you see every day and there's not been any other job that I've had that's been like that. So the pros were like the immediate return on investment, seeing kids every day, just like having them in class, seeing how their minds work, all of that was amazing. But there were also some difficulties as well because Teach for America's model is built on closing the achievement gap with consistent gains year over year. And I just felt very discouraged after my first year that 
we weren't making year over year gains. It came up in a few different ways. And one way, um, there were students in my classroom who did amazing and they were so smart and they really responded well to the methods I was using. But when they went on to their 11th grade teacher and the 11th grade teacher didn't frame it the exact same way, it's like that knowledge didn't transfer. They didn't transfer that these skills work for me in Ms. Watson's class, so they'll work for me in this other class. And so that's one place where I thought it's not as linear as I'd hoped. And then the other thing is I just started to see so many of the things that I was fighting as a teacher teacher happened before my kids ever even got to my classroom. Like you cannot learn about the Renaissance if you don't know where you're sleeping tonight or you saw your parent get beat up or you don't have food, you don't have access to healthcare, like very basic needs that kids need. And we know neurologically, like your brain does not have space for this. So I would see kids who were brilliant, but they didn't have those immediate needs met and they could not focus on school. And it wasn't, it wasn't their fault. So I started to think more about making systemic change and I left the classroom thinking I was going to support the same kids, same families, but from a different angle and hope that that was in support of their long-term educational gains. One piece that really resonates with me, especially from a high school teacher perspective, just what you said, you're battling so much and you're battling. They've already spent over a decade in our broken education system. So having to fight with like years and years and years of them being pushed further behind and developing an even more negative relationship with school and having more factors outside of school that are affecting them. I think for high school teachers in particular, it's really hard to see how you're going to close that achievement gap because by the time you get to 10th, 11th, 12th grade, it's just a huge, huge gap. Yeah, the gap was so much bigger than I ever anticipated. I mean, you read about the achievement gap. I knew about the achievement gap. It's completely different to see it every day and to see I mean in the 10th grade like if your kids are I would say on average they're reading around like a fifth grade level but I, I tested some kids who are reading on a second grade level and it's so demoralizing honestly to think about all of these things that are like the newspaper your textbooks just everything in life is supposed to be on the seventh grade level and that's not accessible to you I mean even just circling back really quickly to the bar when I took the bar exam you needed I think a 60 or a 65 percent to pass and so it was failing and I had never experienced true failure in the ways that I I did as I was studying leading up to it because if your goal is 65% two months out you're low and it does come together like by the end it's fine but I just think about that with my students they had been feeling that for all of those years of failure and I was like okay come on let's keep motivated but I really did not know how hard that was and for a child it just puts it in a different perspective for what that looks like what that feels like why they disengage and there's just a lot to unpack there yeah Yes, it's like why organizations like Close the Gap Foundation, instead of the achievement gap, they talk about the opportunity gap and how there are just uncontrollable life factors. Students can work their booty off and they're still going to be up against systemic things that they just cannot change. And I like what you're saying about like like the the deeper than the data, because the part that's always been like difficult for me as an educator is like, I try and put myself in their shoes of like, how would I feel if I had to go to a building every day where I was learning nuclear physics, which to me is like another language. I don't understand physics at all. I don't want to learn it. I've made it this far. I don't need to know it. So like, how would I feel if all day, every day, I was just being presented with information that made me feel so stupid and so inadequate and so confused? And I think it sets them up even beyond the education system. It doesn't build confidence in them. So they're, they don't have the confidence to learn something new or try something new because they've just been met with 
with every day for over a decade, stuff that's way, way out of reach for them, that's not been made accessible for them. So I think like that social emotional impact goes far beyond just like the little bubble sheet says you're wrong, says you don't know how to read. So Well, it does impact how, I mean, we're telling kids you failed, like you failed my class or even thinking I used to do these little exit surveys at the end of the year, like what was your favorite memory from Miss Watson's class or when did you feel like you succeeded in every kid? I mean, even kids that did not pass, they had a thing and it would be like, I made a hundred percent on this specific quiz or on this, you know, that feeling of empowerment and success and learning to celebrate that is so important. And there's just not like a framework to do that within a lot of schools. And it's certainly not the student's fault. It's also not the teacher's fault because they have so many constraints in their time. So I'm hesitant to say it's not anyone's fault, but I can't think of whose fault it is offhand. But it's just everyone's fault. I mean, it's, it's everyone's fault. But then it's also like, it's just hard for the kids too. And it's a different perspective now being out of the classroom. But I think about that all the time. It takes forever to win a lawsuit. You get some part of it. You don't get some part of it. You know, you win a great judgment. It's not implemented in the ways you thought. But seeing the kids every day, I will always miss it. Where are you now? Now I'm working at the ACLU, which has been great. Um, my practice primarily focuses on a few different buckets. Because I do racial justice work, I'm conducting investigations and filing litigations in a few big buckets. Most of my time right now is spent on classroom censorship. Um, sometimes you hear these called like anti-critical race theory laws or educational gag orders. But basically, there's a spate of laws that have been introduced in almost every state in this country and passed in 17 states that prohibit discussions of systemic racism and sexism in classrooms, both at the K-12 and higher ed level. So I'm spending a lot of my time litigating those cases. I'm lit- leading litigation in Florida to Florida Stop Woke Act, but then also also involved in cases in Oklahoma and New Hampshire. Separate from the classroom censorship work, my practice also includes bias on policing and includes the criminalization of poverty, particularly criminalization of homelessness, and working on cases that are challenging cities who are clearing homeless encampments without any regard for the unhoused people's rights who live there. And then also I've done a lot of work around equity and inequalities that have arisen or been magnified as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. You're saving the world. We're just we're just here talking. You're doing it all. No teacher can <laughs> say we're just anything. You know what? That is true. Today, those kids did not know about the Great Depression, and now a solid four of them know about it. Wins. We'll take them, because no one knows anything <laughs> additional today. Now that you're doing all of this work, how do you feel that your experiences as a teacher influenced the work that you're doing now and your perspective? that you have. Teaching it prepares you for every job just because there are skills that you have to use with students. Like other people aren't learning organizations. They aren't learning systems. They're not having to manage hundreds of people for high school at a time or hundreds of personalities also for uh, elementary and middle school. So I think teaching sets you up for a lot. But particularly with the classroom censorship work, it's really given me a perspective into the impact of these laws because I taught political science and I taught world history I've seen a classroom and it's hard for me to put myself in the situation of teachers now who are trying to teach and be engaging for their students and accurate and truthful and prepare their students for exams in life, but have these constraints on what they can say. And I just think about like what engaged my students? How did I bring them into the information they didn't want to learn about? Believe it or not, political science and world history are not like 
sexy subjects in school. So like <laughs> no one's really running to your classroom because they want to talk about the constitution. So I do think like making it very real for students and allowing them to bring themselves to the classroom because students are seeing, they're observing everything, they're processing everything, and they're trying to understand how to process things. So they do need to talk through current events or ask questions. And there's just no space to do that within this framework. It's just hard. And also I taught at a school where over 99% of my students were black. And so we were having very frank discussions about race and racism, and that is important for them. It is important because you know, they're taking all of these things in. They see that we now have a black president, but then they also don't understand how they could be three times more likely to be killed in a police encounter. Like those pieces don't necessarily fit together. And so there's so many discussions about race and racism that are important, or even things like um, racially motivated violence, like what we saw in Jacksonville, what we saw in Buffalo. And I've read accounts of teachers saying like, students are asking us these questions and we tell them we don't know, we can't answer it, like some type of way of trying to squirrel out of it. But my classroom experience helps me to understand what this means for teachers. And then just to also think about all of the pressures that teachers already have. So to heighten that culture of intimidation and fear and someone is checking what you wrote in your syllabus or listening in to try to catch you in a violation of the law or to intimidate you. It, it just like that's not what teachers need either. It doesn't benefit students. Now outside of the classroom and as a lawyer, I've read a lot of research about the benefits of culturally relevant teaching or culturally responsive teaching. And those benefits are across the board for students, engagement, academic, social development. Like school is a place not just for learning what's in the books, but for learning how to interact with each other, how to interact with different people. Even if you're in a racially homogenous school, there's a lot of differences within that group. And there's just not space for that right now to have those important discussions. But I know that kids need it from my experience in the classroom. And that so resonates with me, especially because I teach AP US history. And we just finished our unit about like, it was from 1800 to 1848. So very much like the throes of slavery, not a great time to be alive in the US for most people. I hated that I had to think about that. I hated that I when giving students material that was factual statistics about slavery, I had to think, what if the governor decides to come to my school today? What are they gonna think of this? What if a parent sees this and it makes them feel a certain type of way? Like I, teachers, like you said, have enough on us that like we should be focused on teaching our students accurate history and not have to worry about how that history is gonna get politicized and weaponized against us in our own classrooms. Yeah, I think about this movement, the classroom censorship movement, it was born out of gains that happened after a brief racial reckoning, like after the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, everyone was still home in the COVID pandemic, most things were shut down, and just kind of tuned in to the reality of racism in this country. And people were having discussions about things that don't typically come up, like the education system has never fully served the needs of BIPOC students. And so, you know, we're talking about what else can we do? How can we bring narratives in so it's not just heterosexual white men who are represented throughout history like what are the narratives of other people and it was a time to really reflect on what is possible in education and then immediately followed by this classroom censorship movement where we're just trying to scramble to get back to the previous status quo like no one's even talking about what 
BIPOC students deserve anymore because we're just trying to get out of this land where teachers can only say, like, parrot the lines approved by their respective state government. And it's hard to think about how much ground we've lost in three years, really two years of these educational gag orders being passed. It's like one step forward, nine steps back. Absolutely. So with that awful reality we're living in, how do you feel like teachers can create inclusive and like diverse learning environments and materials when we have these legal requirements on us and are forced to conform to these policies in a lot of states? Yeah, that's a really great question and also a really hard question. I will be honest, I don't have an exhaustive like one, two, three, and you're done. But I do think it's fair to continue thinking about like the principles of culturally responsive teaching. How do you bring your students' experience into their learning? What about their background can they reflect on that it makes them both a leader and a learner in the classroom? And I know that there has been some pushback, at least in Florida, on, you know, there was the whole discussion about banning textbooks because they included references to social justice and the word problems or things like that. But it is worthwhile, I think, considering as a teacher, how do you have your students, teach your students to reflect on their own identity and to value each other? I think also, I mean, one of the big problems with these laws, and we're challenging this on constitutional grounds, is that they're vague. Teachers cannot tell what conduct is prohibited and what conduct is permissible because they're written in these very large sweeping words, or many of them have a triple negative that has been copied from one law to another. And so there is a question about what is or isn't permissible in schools, which is hard because you're a teacher and you don't want to get sued or lose your teacher like teacher's license or your job. But I think really trying to be thoughtful about looking for topics or discussions, like where can you reasonably say that line is? Because what's happening now is a chilling effect. Chilling meaning that the law says you can't talk about moral superiority. So people don't talk about race or anything that has to do with white superiority, white supremacy, or anything we think is tangentially related to race or racism automatically gets shut off. But that's not exactly what the law says. And that chilling effect is a both a practical reality, but also a legal term as well. So I think looking for opportunities to build on your students' identities, thinking carefully about what is still permissible under these laws that you can teach about, and then also pointing students to a direction where they can get more holistic, more accurate learning. The reality is kids are kids for a very short period of time. They're not going to be in school for forever. So if they miss some of this information from this redactics class, they may never learn it. Oh, that scares me. It's scary. <laughs> so like, what are the other resources, which might be community resources that we can point them to? There's things like hosting band books club, which I did. I have a 14 year old niece and we had a band books club to talk about new kid. I don't know if you've heard of that book, but just it's, it's like, how do we get the information to people? And then I think also there's a question of how do you still encourage students to think deeply? I wasn't aware of, you know, the hierarchy of thinking, but you guys, know your teachers like at the top analysis is at the top of that we want to push our kids to get to that analytical level but it can be hard to do that within the confines of these laws that are more like top down this is what you should think don't worry about the thinking we'll do it for you speaking of analysis life hack this is what i do for things that i am concerned might be towing the line of some of those 
god awful little censorship laws. This is more for like social studies teachers. Almost every social studies curriculum I've ever seen in many states has a standard about analyzing primary sources. So that is a fun little way that you can include lots of this information and it is standards based. So I had my students, the way they had to analyze primary sources was they were reading and analyzing the advertisements for runaway slaves. So if I had given them a passage that someone could have felt like was biased about runaway slaves, I could have gotten myself in hot water. But the fact that if you can find a primary source for students to analyze, I hate that we even have to have the conversation of like, what's a safe way to talk about these things. But that is often a way, at least in my experience, where you've been able to be very clear, like this is tied to the curriculum. This is not an opinion. This is not the scary critical race theory that you guys are also afraid of that almost no K through 12 school is even doing. And kind of basing it in that this is what was written during the time that it happened. No one can look at me and say this is a lie or propaganda or whatever because it's literally from when it happened. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely amazing and important for kids to know because you want them to be able to both analyze but predict. Like prediction is such a, a big skill. And I remember when I was teaching world history, you have to teach about the world religions. And I was teaching in Atlanta in the Bible Belt and like the kids could not understand you know, we're talking about Christianity, regardless of your beliefs. We're learning that there was a man named Jesus. This person died. What happened next is debatable for all religions. But we know like, and, and they just could not get to why was he such a threat? And so we literally positioned ourselves in the classroom like, okay, this group, why would they be concerned? This group, what are they thinking? Like, what are their motivations? I would choose someone who had a colorful personality. Like, what if all of you all believe this person who's in trouble often like, what if you really followed him? And then like, what types of things would you do? What rules would you break? Who would be upset about those? Like those types of things. And it helps the kids understand and really like start to see, make things real so they can retain it. But it's just hard to like dig that deeply when you're being told not to talk about race and racism or with the teachers that I speak with, their principals say something that's even much higher level. Like I don't want calls from parents. And that could mean don't talk about this. That could mean, like in Florida, don't say gay. You know, there's so much wrapped up in it. And it's hard to disentangle what the impact of the law is when you are or education is under attack in a lot of ways from so many different directions. Yeah, I keep hearing that from teachers where they're like getting those type of instructions and the law itself also being vague, like you mentioned, because a lot of people will say to me, well, that's not what the law says when I when I post things about these censorship laws. But I feel like society should be able to wrap their minds around the fact that just because it's not what the law says, there are always these overcorrections that happen. I mean, this is like panic. The ways that conservatives are attacking schools and education right now, it feels very panicky. And it's like teachers wanting to be these safe people for their students, wanting to teach accurate history so that they don't miss out on it for their whole educational career. Because there's a very real fear that you might be the only person, like you said, that gets to teach this accurate history to a child, especially as these laws become more pervasive. Who knows if the next teacher is going to be brave enough, you know, because it comes down to that. So it's like, do we want all of our safe teachers to get fired? Of course not. So I can't just 
just be like, well, don't care about it. Just do whatever, which is usually like what I would say if that wasn't the reality <laughs> that teachers were facing. I'd be like, who cares? But we care. We care very much. Yeah, I mean, you have to care. There's a few things that are happening. One, these laws have been intentionally written to make it tricky to oppose them. In Florida, the law, the Stop Woke Act, changes the definition of discrimination. I always tell people, I've never met a teacher who became a teacher because they wanted to hurt kids. Like, that's not a thing. That's not why you become a teacher. If you want to hurt kids, there's much more profitable ways to do it besides teaching. Go work at a standardized testing company. (laughs) This isn't the profession if that's what you want to do. And so that's not to say every teacher is perfect, but generally, like, teachers want to help kids. And some of the statements that are written, despite these horror stories you see reported on Fox News without sources. Teachers aren't going into classrooms and saying, like, you, white student, feel guilty, like your parents were enslavers. That's not a thing. Most of the laws, these education gag orders, are based on prohibited concepts deemed to be divisive. Some of them are pretty straightforward, saying teachers can't say that one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. Great. Teachers weren't saying that anyway. One divisive concept is that any individual should feel guilt, anguish, discomfort on behalf of their race or sex. An individual would bear responsibility for the actions committed in the past by someone else of their same race or sex. And then there's at least one prohibited concept that I'm going to read to you verbatim because it's so hard to understand, but it says members of one race or sex cannot and should not attempt to treat others without respect to race or sex. And at least in our litigation in Florida, Judge Walker said, like, the triple negative is almost indecipherable. Like, who knows what that means? Members of one race or sex cannot and should not attempt to treat others without respect to race or sex. That is very difficult to understand. They lose me completely in the second half. I have no clue. Yeah, it's the without part. If you have a race or sex, you can't treat anyone up. What? You cannot and should not try to pe- treat people without respect to race or sex. Without respect. It's like, what does <laughs> so that does even that mean? does that mean you're supposed to respect their race or you're not supposed to respect their race? But as a teacher, your job can depend on this. Your livelihood, your ability to defend a lawsuit. I hope that they never send me to court because I'm going to laugh in that courtroom. <laughs> I am not going to be able to take it seriously. I'm I'm going to turn into the jury like I'm on SNL. I'm going to be like, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> seriously. It's a lot. It's a lot to think about like your livelihood. You went to school. You've been teaching for years. You deserve to retire from this profession. There's just so much at stake personally and then even groups like moms for liberty like in new hampshire they put a bounty out so they were out on twitter we'll pay 500 dollars to the first person who finds a teacher violating the law oh it's my god scary. earlier i was gonna say this reminds me of the salem witch trials and then i was like let me rein it in because like let's not be that serious but it is that serious 500 dollars to anyone who finds a teacher violating the law yes oh i'm terrified for the first teacher and i mean these laws, most of them have provisions that allow individuals to sue, sometimes not even like parents, like any aggrieved person can sue the teacher. Teachers are facing disciplinary action, termination. They can lose their teaching license. We've seen proposals for teachers to face criminal sanctions. So you could 
go to jail for violating these laws. There are criminal liabilities in some states for librarians. We've also seen proposals across the country to record classrooms either in real time or to play it delayed so people can try to catch. And there was a Mississippi legislator who said they wanted to catch teachers teaching critical race theory. There have also been proposals in places, um, I think Indiana had a proposal that would allow any person, like not even a parent, like any person can come in and audit a classroom. And I think given the context of school safety and the number of school shootings, we don't need to invite angry people to come to classrooms to become ang- like instance with teachers. It's if I was a parent, I don't want Carl who hangs out outside down the street to just come in here around my child. That's bananas to allow any adult to come audit a classroom. Oh yeah, I'm a manager of Ace Hardware. Wanted to see what y'all had going on. Don't have any kids. Just wanted to make sure right. you aren't teaching stuff I disagree with. It's like, are they going to accuse you of like being guilty? Because it's like, well, why don't you want Carl from Ace Hardware in your classroom? What are you doing? What are you doing in there? Because that, that's like how they Because I want my students to feel safe. Right. How about that? Carl right. doesn't give a safe vibe, you guys. Carl doesn't care. I know the law says Carl can come in, but I don't agree. You spend a lot of time, especially my sister is a first year teacher. And I told her like, you know, she's like, the second day, okay, I think we've gotten classroom management. I was like, oh, you'll see. No, that first no. six to eight weeks is just like <laughs> learning classroom norms and learning your boundaries that you're going to be consistent, you learning your students as well. And you spend time like literally cultivating for elementary school teachers. But I thought high school, we had classroom meetings that were almost verbatim what some of the kindergarten teachers were having about like respecting your neighbor and those types of things. And once you have that set, students aren't questioning your authority in ways or it's, it's just, but that is like your ecosystem of how things work in your classroom based on your norms. They know you're going to respect them. You know, they're going to respect you. You're going to demand respect. And you can't just bring anyone into the classroom to interrupt that. There's two halves of my brain and one half is always like, come on in. You want to see? Come on in. You know what? There's nothing going on. You look so silly right now. And the other half of my brain is like, don't you dare say anything close to that because they'll be like, I'm going to do that everywhere. I'm entitled to do that. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, you're no, I said you can come into my room because I'm mad at you. But that doesn't mean that you can codify it into law and decide to do that. It's, it's so, it does not surprise me at all that the laws are intentionally vague because that was the plan, I'm sure. Because I even tried to look it up to like make sure I was like on my P's and Q's. And then I was like, oh, I think I might need to go to law school. I don't understand this. It's, it's confusing. And in some states, we've seen like lawmakers have been very clear. We want to outlaw discussions of BLM. We don't want to talk about implicit bias. We want to talk about white supremacy. We don't. But they say those things and then they include these concepts that don't explicitly say that. I mean, they have things like an individual by virtue of his his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive. Like that is implicit bias. But they don't, it's not just limited to you cannot teach implicit bias. There's a question of like, what else comes in under any of these things? And you could, these are really broad umbrella terms that you could use to drill down and say almost any discussion of racism or sexism or oppression more broadly could fit under them. Especially the one you mentioned about the the, the guilt one, where it's like stuff yeah. that might make people feel guilt on account of their race or sex. I am not in control of my students' emotions. The way that they feel when we talk about what happened, I, I don't know. So I think like 
they're like you said, they're writing the laws vaguely on purpose to weaponize it against any person or situation that they deem that they don't like, but are like deciding that teachers don't even deserve the bare minimum of the respect of clear guidelines. They're just making it vague so they can say, I saw Goody Proctor teaching critical race theory. Put her in jail. Yeah. Put her in jail. And there's also the question of whose feelings matter here. Because BIPOC students have felt uncomfortable with representations of enslaved people for years. And that hasn't changed anything. I don't think any students should feel uncomfortable with at school. They shouldn't feel guilt. They shouldn't feel anguish about what's happening, what has happened in the past. But it's just, my point is that the concept of like guilt or shame or who's going to be impacted is different here than it has been in the past. And it should be that all students have a right to learn. All students can feel comfortable in the classroom. And it's just a hard situation um, that can honestly feel a little bit overwhelming when you dig into all that's happened, how quickly it's happened, and what's at stake. Yeah. One of the arguments I hear a lot is, oh, that's a parent's job. We'll teach that. Well, they're not. And a lot of parents, like, they they don't even know what they're talking about themselves. They don't know accurate history. And the history of our country has been filled with atrocities. And feeling empathetic and feeling sad or feeling even guilty, I think that makes you human. You're going to process emotions that are not always pleasant. We need to look at these many, many events, including enslaved people's experiences. If we don't look that in the face, we're not going to dismantle. I can't swear because we have a lawyer on the podcast. I will. You don't have to stop swearing on account of me. But I mean, you're right. That's one. You really hit on something that's like a great misnomer because conservatives have framed this as a parents' rights movement. Parents want this. But that's not true. The overwhelming majority of parents want their students to learn about race and racism in school. I have a few stats for you. One study found that 87% of parents agree that lessons about the history of racism prepare students for a better future for everyone. Another study found more than 70% of Americans agree that high school should teach about the impacts of slavery and racism. And then one final study concluded that more than 60% of American parents want their kids to learn about the ongoing effects of slavery and racism. It's not a question of whether or not parents want students to learn about this. It's really a vocal minority that's hijacked the term, if you will. Uh, They're claiming to represent parents, but they're not. And so when we think about What can teachers do to create this inclusive and diverse learning environment? I think you asked me about this, Ms. Redacted. I think it's also flagging that students are asking these questions, and we need parents and students to speak up about what they want to learn, what belongs in their schools, because right now we have a minority who's like very loud, but I would say loud and wrong in many respects. And there's just not as many voices. And sometimes it feels like a train that's coming at you and it's inevitable, but it's not. And it's easier to prevent bad legislation than to deal with it once you have it. And so I think just looking for opportunities, we need other voices at school board meetings, calling their legislators, proposing legislation, like all of those things are things that shouldn't only fall on teachers, but can make a difference here. For sure. I often feel that now that I'm not in the classroom, I'm able to advocate for change in a very different way and reminding people that this is a vocal minority and that you can raise your voice and advocate for teachers as a parent, I think is really, really powerful because parents' rights is 
a load of trash. What about my kid? I don't want my kid learning some type of whitewashed history. And then they're coming for social emotional learning and we've never needed social emotional learning more. They're coming for books. So we're losing Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's windows and mirrors and sliding glass doors. We're hiding those away in boxes. Scholastic is like, you can opt out of those if you want. Like it is just madness. So like empowering parents to use their voice is like, I think really important. Yeah. And I'm not saying parents have no rights, but parents shouldn't exercise their rights in a way that prevents the right to learn of other students. And what we're seeing, I was just reading something. When you see the laws here, there's always been the opportunity to challenge books in libraries. Like this is nothing new. Books have been challenged in libraries probably since there have been libraries. But librarians are trained professionals. Like teachers are trained professionals. Librarians receive training to identify what books are age appropriate and developmentally appropriate. Before this current classroom censorship movement, if a parent had a problem with a book, they would file a complaint with the library in most instances, and then the library book would be reviewed, and then they would make a decision on whether or not it was um, permissible or appropriate. But now in many states, I'll use my great state of Florida as an example, you know, they changed this law under, I think it's House Bill 1069, and this is happening across the country. So when someone complains about a book, the book is immediately removed while it's pending review. That's a problem for a lot of reasons because you ha- you're removing books, removing access to materials without even substantiation that there's a problem with the material. Just circling back to re-emphasizing kids are in school for such a short period of time and it is detrimental that they can lose access to those materials. I mean, I talked about one of our litigation claims being the vagueness under the 14th Amendment, which is more due process. Before you're penalized, you should have a right to know what conduct is permissible or prohibitive. But one of our other claims that we've been bringing in Florida and in Oklahoma is around a student's right to information. And this is especially important in the high school collegiate context. We're just recognizing kids have a right to see a variety of perspectives and decide their own opinion. Once they have reached an age where they can consider different material, they shouldn't be limited to one view only that the legislature or the governor wants. And that has been one of the claims that we brought. Um, Another claim we brought has been around viewpoint-based discrimination. And it's just saying these laws and these states, they select one viewpoint and they only want you to say, teach this one viewpoint. There is no space for disagreement. You could say systemic racism is a crock of lies. <laughs> I was going to get carried away, Raz, but you could say these are lies and that's fine. But you can't say there's any research in Florida and Oklahoma. We've also filed claims alleging that these laws are racially discriminatory. So there's a lot to unpack there about why these laws are problematic. And why, like we said about the one viewpoint, like they're trying to make us teach from the viewpoint of the legislator who created and is passing this law. If I was a parent, I wouldn't really want my child to be learning from the viewpoint of a man who took uh, social studies in Oklahoma in the 60s. That's probably not what I would think of as the most up-to-date viewpoint and perspective. So it's crazy that we're letting, like you said, legislators that don't have training in education, that don't have training in reading, that don't have training in developmentally appropriate materials decide these blanket K through 12 laws that affect us and aren't even clear. And not even just K through 12, because we also see these laws in higher ed as well. Yes. 
That's why my degree is less valuable now. Florida State dropped in the rankings, and now my degree is even less valuable than when I got it. It's hard. I mean, our plaintiffs in Florida and Oklahoma and colleges there were talking about very hard decisions. Should I transfer out of the state? I'm majoring in anthropology. I'm majoring in sociology. I'm majoring in something, and I'm not going to get the material that I need for my chosen career path. Do I stay at the school that I wanted to go to? Do I leave and try to start over at another school? These are very real considerations and for professors because the professors are being told what they can or cannot teach as well. And it can run afoul of their scholarship, their decades of research. There's a question for them. How do you teach? For our name, Plana, in um, our Florida litigation, Professor Purnell, he wrote the casebook that he's using on racism in the criminal procedure system. And he's teaching a class, racism and criminal procedure. It is hard to understand how you can teach that class or teach from that book and not run afoul of the prohibitions of the law that prevent all of these discussions of racism in courses. That's terrifying. And even thinking about, I went to Florida State and majored in sociology and learned so, so much about institutional racism and the effects of bias and all these things. And it just makes me sad to think about all those amazing professors I had that are now like have like you said a gag order on them and can't talk about these things at a, especially at a collegiate level. Also, I mean, just think about doctors. We talked a lot about racial equities in the COVID pandemic and the maternal mortality crisis for students, med students. They can't learn this material either. I mean, it literally goes even law students. One of our plaintiffs talks about this. She teaches an education law class. How can you talk about Plessy v. Ferguson if you can't talk about the context that necessitated these cases? Like, the more I learn, the worse it gets. I don't like that. Yeah. And the kids aren't learning anything. We're not even letting them learn about it. I think this is, I mean, because it is so critical. Are there any, like, resources or books or things like that that you might recommend to people who are looking to learn more or get involved even? Absolutely. There are a few resources that I will point you to. There are resources on the ACLU's website. I can link these for you. There's a toolkit about what parents and students can do just to empower themselves. There's recommendations about how to prepare to go to speak at a school board meeting, how to start your own band books club. There are a few blog articles that I've written about lessons learned two years into this fight about what classroom censorship is really about. Also, after we won an order in Florida blocking the state of Florida from enforcing the higher ed provisions of the Stop Woke Act, I wrote about lessons learned from that. I've also done, if you want to do a very deep dive, a law review article that is in the latest issue of the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review. It's about 65 pages, but walks through this classroom censorship movement, how it got started, what's at stake, the scope of instruction, which I call race conscious instruction. But it's not just critical race theory. It's not just culturally responsive teaching, but also regular classroom discussions about race. And then the resultant education gag orders and walks through our litigation in in Florida, Oklahoma, and New Hampshire. Um, So I can give you a link to all of those resources as well. Yes, please. We love a resource around here. I have a sick joy of reading research. We love a link. Yeah, I love a link. We love a link. We love a share link to story. This is not off topic, but a little bit of a shift. But this is my favorite question that we had on our little question list. So I want to make sure we ask it. 
how can society strike a balance between protecting free speech and then addressing hate speech and harmful content? So how do how do we as a society kind of live in that balance of, like you said, giving parents their rights and having people have their freedom of speech and freedom as parents and freedom of opinion, but also protecting against these really harmful things? I often see it framed that you can either care about protecting free speech or you can care about protecting children, but you can't care about both. And I just don't think that that is accurate. Thinking about something like discrimination specifically, discrimination is really focused on discriminatory acts, not discriminatory speech. Discriminatory speech can rise to the level of conduct, but it's primarily conduct. And so we have to think about the difference between acting in a way that's discriminatory or harmful and saying something that the governor, the legislature, a parent doesn't like. And I think the lever there has to shift towards free speech when the basis of the disagreement is, I don't like it. The government doesn't like it. This isn't the sanctioned viewpoint. Once we get into a land where the government can say, this is our perspective and you have to do it or else, I really think that that is harmful for a lot of reasons. And so kind of like disaggregating what we are identifying as discriminatory, what are we identifying as harmful? Is it really harmful? Because we're seeing this with a lot of books that anything that either features or even mentions an LGBTQ plus character is deemed to be obscene, it's deemed to be pornographic. And there are people out there who think that liberals are pushing porn on children. I got a hate letter about this like two weeks ago. Oh, Leah, you and me both. They really do believe this. They do. Did you see about the seahorses? No. Oh, there was a book that Moms for Liberty basically called Playboy for um, seahorses. It's like the penguins. It's exactly like the penguins. Mm -hmm. Because true story, the penguins loved each other. I'm talking about Entangle Makes Three, but The Shyest Fish in the Sea, Seahorses, it's like an informational book about seahorses that the males carry the baby. And they were so mad about that. And I was like, we have lost it. You're like, it's literally the truth. Like, it's literally just what happens. I'm so sorry. Worm loves worm. They hate that. Worms are both male and female. And they hated that too. And I'm like, are you guys like, okay, like we're going into the animal kingdom now? They're like quivering in a corner. They're like, shut up about the worms. Do not talk about the non-binary worms in front of my child. Like these are real fights that are happening. They're taking these books off the shelves. It could be like, there are books where people talk about their experience as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. But sometimes it's just like, and then there was Leah. And Leah had two moms. And Leah, like the whole story is about this one character who just happens to have two like just as an aside and it could be one line in a book of a very meaningful story but these these are materials that are being taken out of classrooms so I do think thinking about and really pressing why is this harmful who is at harm and if the line is I don't like it or my governor doesn't like it or the legislature they don't like it that just can't be our standard full agree such a obvious yet emblematic answer because I never really thought about it where like you're right like it literally is like one or two people making the line and that's insane yeah the casual mentions are the things that we need to like just the regular old stories kids being kids but hey they happen to have two moms they happen to have two dads like that kind of integration where we just like normalize people living their lives and being who they are like that's beautiful and we need more of that in society and it makes me ill that one complaint can be filed and the book is pulled people will come into my comments and be like that book wasn't banned and I'm like it was 
pulled off the shelves because one person said something and they like will pull it again and again every time it gets called out. Yeah. And I think it's also a sign of the times. We just had a whole revolt over a black mermaid. I love the little mermaid. Oh my God. And I was so excited to see it, but also disgusted to see the racist comments or the protests or, you know, people would refuse to see the film because there was a black mermaid and mermaids obviously can't be black, but mermaids obviously are not real. I disagree with you there. Mermaids are real and some of them are black and they deserve representation. Okay, I stand corrected, (laughs) but people are having very visceral reactions. And I agree with you, you know, representation matters. And that's not to say that we should not have books that are full narratives from BIPOC or LGBTQ people. We need that. Kids need to see themselves reflected in the curriculum and other kids need to learn. There's a lot to learn from people from their varied experiences. That part has been missing in education for a long time. But there's just so many ways of attacking these issues. And it's really, you know, it's like, I don't like it. No one else can have it. And it's dangerous for kids. And we've already had whitewashed history. So we're seeing a re-whitewashing where we were previously seeing, like, my niece was talking, she's a child. So she was talking about learning, like, Aunt Leah, did you know Christopher Columbus didn't discover America? You can't discover it. There's already people there. And I was like, you're right. And then we see a retrenchment. And, and in some places, even thinking about the social studies standards that we saw in Florida, they are blatantly false um, and just complete misrepresentations. And you know, it's a misrepresentation. I know it's a misrepresentation. But in 20 years, if allowed to stand, students are not going to know that the founding fathers did not write the Declaration of Independence with freeing enslaved people in mind. Like it's just a completely manufactured reality that is going to functionally replace what we know to be the case if we don't fight back. Yes. Oh my gosh. I could talk to you for 800 years, I think. I really enjoyed chatting with you guys. Is there anything that you'd like to share that we haven't touched on? I think the only other thing is that I really just want to focus on classroom censorship as a racial justice issue too. You guys asked me about free speech and we talk about free speech, but it is in the context of racial justice and the leaders, the proponents of this classroom censorship movement have said that this movement was the best counter response to the Black Lives Matter movement. So you can't divorce the context from the motivations here. And I think we have to continue to think about racial justice, what is going to bring us closer to racial justice? How do we pursue it? How do we keep that front of mind? We are dealing with attacks on the First Amendment, the 14th Amendment more broadly, but we have to think about kids and what kind of world we want them to live in. It cannot be a world where the government can just deny any of its past wrongs until you can't speak up, where prevent you from teaching kids to learn to think critically, because these are going to be our leaders. They can't fight what they don't see. And we're at risk of losing their ability to see it currently. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so real. And like the things that are at at stake right now, it is very scary because it's already bad in Congress. It's already bad in the House of Representatives. I'm terrified of the House of Representatives. I think the House of Representatives should have to do a cahoot about civics and then anyone that's in the top three can stay. Yeah. And if we just keep whitewashing history over and over and over again and teaching it intentionally that way, 
not we, but you know, the, if that's what the laws are saying to do, like you said, that's going to become the reality in people's minds when these children become adults, if they do not get an accurate, truthful, historical representation. Just because they're not pretty doesn't mean that we can't learn about them and learn from them, and we must. So I'm glad that you brought yeah. that up. Have done and are currently doing. And are currently doing. That is absolutely true. Because current events are also just, I'm sure you can't do that either. Yeah. I mean, there there were reports about teachers saying, I don't know how to talk about this with my I don't know how to talk about the massacre in Buffalo where the assailant admitted these are for racist motivations. And I mean, we that's a whole different conversation about violence in our schools and keeping kids safe at school. But it is important to think about, like, what are all the reasons that we send our kids to school? And it's not just to learn. You're not sending them there only to rote memorize five facts about each standard. There's a lot that goes there. And even the Supreme Court has said, these are nurseries of democracy. These are where kids learn to interact and prepare for a multicultural society. And are we meeting that mandate? I would say no. I think I'm going to give that a hard no. On that depressing note. (laughs) Perfect. We always do this. How do we always (laughs) do that? We always do. (laughs) Thank you so so much much. for being here with us. I'm terrified, but I have a lot of faith knowing that you're on the team of trying to fix it. Thank you so much for having me, for talking about this conversation. One, you're just very fun to talk to. Um, You're fun to talk to, too. Expected to have fun. Definitely had fun. But I appreciate you, like, you know, elevating this issue and be happy to talk about anything else that's not clear or just let me know i'm around of course thank you thank you thank you